Welcome to episode 88 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to retired agents Joe Wolfinger and Chris Kerr, who review the evidence used in 2003 to charge 78-year-old veteran FBI agent Paul Rico in the high-profile 22-year-old murder of Roger Wheeler, a prominent Tulsa, Oklahoma businessman. Paul Rico died in jail before a trial or even a preliminary hearing was ever held. Joe Wolfanger and Chris Kerr had never met Paul Rico. But upon learning of the charge and Rico's death, they decided to look into the case. And they were able to determine that the only witnesses, the only evidence against Paul Rico was provided by two convicted organized crime members who fingered Paul Rico in an attempt to beat new murder raps and to avoid their own death sentences. Joe Wolfinger served nearly 30 years with the FBI. During his bureau career, he rose through a variety of positions, serving as squad supervisor, inspector, special agent in charge, SAC, and lastly, as the assistant director in charge, ADIC, of the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. After retiring from the FBI, Wolfinger, an attorney, served pro bono for 14 years as the executive director of the Major County Sheriff's Association. Chris Kerr served a total of 33 years with the FBI. Initially hired as a clerk and an analyst, he spent the last 26 years of his bureau career as a special agent, primarily working organized crime and drug investigations. Chris Kerr was elected by his peers to serve three terms on the National Executive Board of the Special Agent Association. He was also elected as national co-chair of the FBI Special Agents Advisory Committee. When Kerr retired from the FBI, he went to law school and now has a new career as a criminal defense lawyer. Wolfinger and Kerr compiled their findings in a book they wrote about their investigation. RICO, How Politicians, Prosecutors, and the Mob destroyed one of the FBI's finest special agents. You can learn more about the book and the agent authors by visiting their website, ricobook.com. As you may recall, I've interviewed Joe Wolfinger before. He was on episode 79, and he reviewed the John Walker family spying case. I also admitted at that time that Joe Wolfinger was my very first FBI supervisor, so it's great to have him back discussing this controversial case. Now, there'll be people who will be relieved to learn more about this case, and there'll be people who disagree with their findings. Listen to the facts and make your own decision. But I think one of the most important parts of this interview was the lack of anger and animosity displayed by Wolfinger and Kerr. I actually spoke to Joe the other day, and I was telling him that while I was editing the interview, I noticed they made no disparaging remarks about the people involved. 
and Joe said something remarkable. He said he liked the detective who pursued Paul Rico, but that the Tulsa, Oklahoma detective had gotten things wrong, terribly wrong. The reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because in today's atmosphere, especially online and in social media, there is so much negativity and the professional way that Joe Wolfinger and Chris Kerr conducted this investigation and wrote their book is a testament to debate and the respect for difference of opinion. I want to be careful as I say this because everybody has a right to their opinion. But recently, a listener wrote something about me and my work that cut to the bone that was quite hurtful. And I also look at TV and news panels and talk show panels, and I just don't know what's going on. I don't mean to lecture anyone. Everyone has a right to their opinion and has a right to express it in any way they want to. But we've got to be kinder to each other. And remember, no matter what our intentions, our discouraging words not only affect the person that you're talking about, but anyone else who was considering putting themselves out there. I really admired the way that Joe and Chris conducted themselves. I hope you listen to the interview till the very end. The last word or the takeaway message from Chris Kerr and Wolfinger, I believe, is pretty powerful. Also, after the episode, I hope you stick around. I have some recommendations, TV shows and and crime fiction that I'd like to share with you. So thank you. And here's the show. I am absolutely excited to welcome my guest today. I have both Joe Wolfinger. Hi, Joe. Hi. How are you, Jerry? I'm doing good. Nice to uh, talk to you again. We talked several months ago about uh, the John Walker spy case, and and now we're back to uh, talk about this very important case. And with you is Chris Kerr. Hey, Chris. Hi, Jerry. Good to talk to you. This is a case that I will admit I knew nothing about. I remember reading an article that a retired agent in his 70s had been arrested for murder and that this agent had some connection with the Boston office and organized crime. And I thought to myself, oh, no, not again, not another John Connolly. And then I never heard anything else. So you two have the the true story about Harold Paul Rico, who went by Paul. I, I read the book. It is absolutely fascinating. And I think the best thing for me to do is to become an audience member, just like every other listener. If I think of a question, you know, that I think we as listeners need to get a clarification on, I will uh, interrupt. But otherwise, Joe and Chris you know, I'm going to let you take the show. If you could just set it up and let us know who was Paul Rico. Well, well, Jerry, um, you know, um, Chris and I uh, got involved in this uh, because we've been friends for a long time, uh, worked together in the Bureau, uh, at Bureau headquarters for a while. And and, uh, we remain friends and we were, like many other retired agents, talking about what was going on. Uh, Paul Rico was arrested in 2003. He was 78 years old. Uh, 
Uh, he was charged with a murder that occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in uh, 20-some years earlier. Uh, and we had a conversation on the telephone in which we uh, were curious. Neither one of us knew Paul Rico, and we really just kind of wondered, did he, was he involved? Did he do it? Was it another a sad story of a corrupt uh, criminal agent, um, or was uh, was he falsely accused? And that piqued at least my curiosity, and I think Chris's. And we launched off to call a few friends and see who was this guy, Rico, and what did they think about him? Chris? Yeah, well, in January 2004, uh, a 78-year-old Paul Rico died in shackles in Tulsa, Oklahoma, charged there with the murder 22 years earlier, 1981, of a wealthy businessman named Roger Wheeler. The the book that we wrote about this, uh, entitled RICO, How Politicians, Prosecutors, and the Mob Destroyed One of the FBI's Finest Special Agents, is really the story of our five-year investigation of what really happened here. Uh, what kind of man Paul Rico was, what kind of FBI agent he was, and what that case was about, and where the investigation went off the, uh, Rico went off the rails, and, and how we reached our conclusions, and how we support our conclusions. I should say that we started with no preconceived notions. You know, as you mentioned, Jerry, uh, FBI agents have gone bad. They've committed crimes. Uh, they've even betrayed our country. One of them's uh, in Supermax right now uh, because of that. Neither of us knew Paul Rico personally or, or worked with him. Um, but I have to say, this was a fascinating journey. It's fair to say that there, there was much more involved in all of this than Joe and I ever thought possible when we started this uh, venture. Probably the best place to start is the scene of the murder on a late spring day in May 1981, May 27, 1981, at the very exclusive Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Roger Wheeler was probably Tulsa's most prominent citizen. He's a, he was a 55-year-old multimillionaire entrepreneur and was the chairman and CEO of Telex Corporation, a software company. And, and under the 15 years under Roger Wheeler, at the helm, uh, Telex had grown from $5 million a year in, uh, in, in gross to $165 million a year. So it was thriving. So here we are at the Southern Hills Country Club, May 27, 1981. Wheeler had just finished his regular, every week, regular Wednesday round of golf at the, at the club. And as was his routine, he showered, changed, and had a glass of scotch with some uh, friends before heading out the back door of the club, carrying his clubs. Popped open the trunk of his black Cadillac and sat in the driver's seat. Unbeknownst to Roger Wheeler, a short distance away, there were two hired assassins in disguises sitting in a late model brown sedan. They knew all about Wheeler's routine. They knew what he looked like, his tea time, how long it was going to take him to play golf, and what time he'd be heading out to his car. One of the men, heavy set guy wearing a black beard as part of his disguise, just 
calmly walked up to Wheeler as he was about to close the driver's door, stuck a thirty-eight revolver in his face, and pulled the trigger once. The witnesses there said it sounded like a firecracker. He calmly returned to the car. The two drove right out the gate of the club without being noticed by anyone. Now, this murder was a very big deal in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which at the time was a city of about 400,000 with 50 homicides a year. And the assassination of a prominent, very well-connected guy like Wheeler never happens in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A young uh, Tulsa police officer, Mike Huff, was the first to arrive at the scene, and he ended up drawing this as the case of his career. And that right there at that Southern Hills parking lot, Southern Hills Golf Course parking lot, this investigation began. And there were a lot of angles. I mean, Roger Wheeler had a lot of enemies. Uh, One son told us immediately that he suspected the killer was a jealous husband of one of Roger Wheeler's uh, lovers. Um, So there were a lot of people that might want Roger Wheeler dead. But fairly early on, the young detective, Mike Huff, you know, fixed his sights on World Hialeye, a sports operation based in Miami and in Connecticut, and it involved, you know, legalized licensed betting and and sports. And the former FBI agent he became fixed on was who was its Miami director of security, Paul Rico, who retired from the FBI in 1975 and became the director of security for World Highlight. After about five years of investigation, we concluded that you know that Huff was right about the involvement of World Highlight, at least as a motive for the killing, but he was very wrong about Paul Rico. And that rabbit trail led Huff far astray, and it, it led directly to the, to the former agent's grim end there in jail, bleeding to death in January 2004. So our, our book is really the story of how this came to be. And, and you know, we call it a story of a perfect storm of politics and corruption that destroyed one of the finest agents in FBI history. One thing that piqued my interest was that it was very unusual, based on my experience, uh, years of doing criminal work, for somebody, um, even if you take away the law enforcement background that uh, that Rico had, um, he, you know, even, even a, a, a member of the mob who had been who who was charged in a conspiracy in some 22-year-old crime, for them to be held when they had medical problems, to be held in custody um, was pretty unusual. So it seemed to me that the the authorities were going to some you know some pretty great lengths, as as Joe hinted there, to to make life miserable on, rather than just do their job. To, they were really going out of their way. With Paul Rico, and that kind of piqued my interest. I mean, that didn't lead me to really to any conclusions, but I know it piqued our interest. We discussed early on one difficulty that we were going to have in looking into this is that Paul Rico never had, he never even had a preliminary hearing. He was charged on a criminal complaint, which is just an allegation uh, filed by an investigator. He didn't have a trial or uh there was no grand jury presentment. There was just nothing but a, a charge filed, and then he died in jail before any of that happened. So 
you know, we decided early on that we were going to have, if if we were going to try and come to some conclusions about whether what happened to him and what he might have done or not, um, we would we were going to have to talk to the lead investigator, Mike Huff, who was a detective out in uh, working for the Tulsa Police Department, and ask him to uh, to to lay out the case that had never been laid out in court. Uh, so we we did that early on. First of all, we got all the available records, documents that we could find about the case that had been filed and reviewed all of that. And then through Joe's uh, uh, connections, really, uh, with some of the senior law enforcement executives out there, we were able to get... Uh, Mike Huff to sit down with us, and Joe and I flew out there early on to talk to him, to just basically say, look, tell us why you think this guy did this. We had resolved early on that if if we came away from that meeting with him laying out his best case uh, as, as to why he thought Paul Rico had conspired to commit murder with these mobsters uh, out in, in Oklahoma, that we were going to just... The family had been through enough. We were just going to walk away from it at that point and, and let it go. So we spent, what would you say, Joe, we spent maybe three hours with uh, Mike Huff out in yeah, the... Yeah, and, uh, and, you know, uh, I, I might add before we get to Mike Huff that one of the things we did find uh, in uh, documentation was the uh, hearing, bond hearing in, in Tulsa, in which uh, Rico's attorney begged the court to set a date uh, so that they could set a bond and uh, and said to the judge in the court that he was desperately ill. Uh, he he needed the uh, uh, competent medical attention. Uh, Rico's uh, uh, wife, uh, Connie, a lovely lady, who was a nurse, uh, testified that he was desperately ill. Uh, his daughter, one of his daughters, who was a medical doctor, uh, testified that her father was um, was ill, and uh, and so did another daughter who had a background as a nurse but was an attorney, and um, they begged the court to uh, uh, set a bond or to set a date, an early date for a hearing, and um, uh, they the judge refused all the. Uh, uh, pleas of uh, the defense to uh, to do that. Uh, at the end of that hearing, and this really got to me, um, he was now 78 years old, desperately ill, uh, a really, um, you know, a retired FBI agent who we would later find had a really outstanding record. And he was shackled to a bed in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and his attorney at the end of the hearing, after losing all the motions that he made, uh, uh, asked the judge one one more thing, and that was order that the shackle be removed. He was really no threat to anyone. And the prosecution opposed that, uh, which uh, there's really no reason to oppose such a motion unless you just want to punish the guy, hurt the guy. And uh, the judge... Uh, ruled in favor of the prosecution, leaving the, the shackle on. And uh, several hours later, uh, Paul Rico died, uh, shackled to a bed in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
And I have to say, when I read that, I know when Chris read it, it really uh, was something that made us uh, kind of angry. They certainly didn't, uh, they weren't treating him like most criminal um, uh, defendants would be would be treated. And then we obtained the autopsy report, which Chris sent off to a friend um, who was a um, director of nursing at a university. And I'll let you tell what that was about, Chris. Yeah, she was a dean of nursing at Temple University, and she reviewed it and said it it really appeared to her that that he was overdosed with uh, blood thinners is really what happened. He bled out internally. And uh, she said that someone should have lost their license over this, that it was, uh, or I mean, worst case scenario, somebody didn't want to have to try this case. Uh, the way he was treated, it was so negligent, so grossly negligent. Uh, but that, you know, all of these things, you know, just just kept getting us more interested in trying to get to the bottom of what happened in this case. None of this meant that he did not conspire to commit murder didn't mean he was not guilty it just meant that he was treated badly but that was that was enough to keep us very interested and joe alluded to this earlier but in in all of our experience uh in uh criminal investigations even you know i mean mob bosses and 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 serious uh uh suspects uh in other criminal cases uh, when there's with elderly and there's medical need are not incarcerated pre-trial, uh, generally, uh, they'd get house arrest or confined to a medical facility or, or some sort of consideration. And the fact that they were going, uh, the Tulsa authorities were going to the lengths that they had gone in this 22 year old murder case. And keep in mind that, uh, I think for the, the, the listener who has not read the book or is not really familiar with the case, it might help them to know what the charge was here, that Paul Rico had been charged based on the information provided by some uh, convicted killers, mobsters, from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, alleging that Paul Rico had provided some information that was used to locate Roger Wheeler in 1981 so that he could be murdered. Paul Rico wasn't alleged to have even been anywhere near the murder scene or had anything directly to do with the murder itself. But he was charged with conspiring to commit this 22-year-old murder. And under those circumstances and the age of the case and Paul Rico's condition, it was just really unheard of that the authorities would go to the lengths that they did to keep him detained pre-trial. He was certainly no flight risk. At this point, I think we're going to have an audience that is curious about who Paul Rico is. So can we backtrack all the way to the beginning and just talk about, you know, when he joined the FBI and the kind of work that he did? Well, Joe, why don't you... Yeah, uh, we, you know, we called a few people at first. And then um, ultimately called more because uh, our friends and law enforcement sources that that we had, and we found that he was really, uh, Paul Rico wasn't a good agent. He was a great agent. He he was an informant guy. He served between, Rico was an FBI agent from 1951 to 1975. 
he um, uh, had a tremendous talent for uh, developing informants. He never developed, although the many, many people think he did, uh, uh, Whitey Bulger as an informant. Bulger, of course, is the big mobster in Boston who recently was uh, located by the FBI and convicted and is in prison today. Um, uh, he, he, he never operated Whitey as an informant, but he developed Whitey's partner, Stevie Fleming, who was certainly a bad guy and a, and a, a top uh, criminal in Boston as an, as an informant. He developed uh, Joe Barboza, Joe the Animal Barboza, who was a, a multiple murderer, uh, worked uh, for the, uh, uh, the mob up there, wanted to be the, uh, he was Portuguese, uh, of Portuguese extraction, and he thought somehow he could convince the Italian guys that he was bad enough to be in the uh, LCN. Uh, they never took him. He was uh, considered more than a little crazy. Uh, Barboza testified against the um, the boss and other um, LCN members in Boston and New England. Uh, and as a result of his testimony, Raymond Patriarca, the boss, the New England boss, uh, went to prison. Uh, he, uh, Barboza was the first guy to enter the witness protection program. Some say they created it for him. Um, and if that's not enough in a career to be uh, a great informant guy developing the top people in town, developing uh, the cooperating witnesses who put the, the big guy in jail, he developed the second guy, Red Kelly, who was the, uh, uh, he was the mastermind of many crimes in New England, uh, the great mail robbery of several million dollars uh, was planned by Kelly. Uh, he was uh, considered such a criminal genius that he, uh, the LCN used him to plan murders and to plan robberies and things that, that, that they would do. Sometimes Kelly would execute the plan and sometimes he simply make the plan. At any rate, uh, uh, Rico developed Kelly as a cooperating witness, and uh, uh, Kelly uh, testified against Patriarca. He was convicted a second time of a second conspiracy to commit murder, and um, and and he also provided Kelly provided information uh, that allowed the FBI in New York to charge Carlo Gambino. Uh, with a, with crimes, and uh, I'd say that's pretty good. They got the boss of bosses and the New England boss uh, with him, and he put two guys in the witness protection program. I, he, I, I would go. I would have a hard time finding another agent in the history of the FBI who has such uh, strong accomplishments with uh, uh, with informants and cooperating witnesses. Yeah, keep keep in mind that there there really was no. This is back in the day when when Attorney General Bobby Kennedy first really prodded the FBI into getting involved in the the war on the mafia in the, the LCN in the early '60s. And there really was no there was no book. There was there was no plan. Uh, Rico Paul Rico was really uh, 
the, the, the really the superstar of the of the FBI's war on the mob in the uh, in the sixties, and uh, agents were under a lot of pressure to develop informants, and that he had a real talent for getting these people to talk to him, and he had a reputation that helped. Uh, and he was considered, he was just a real superstar. I mean, we, we didn't, you know, uh, as you alluded, uh, earlier, Jerry, uh, you know, a lot of agents who were, you know, he was before our time and we really didn't know until we dug into this and started talking to, uh, you know, retired agents who, who really knew what was going on back in the day. We didn't really understand what a big deal Paul Rico was. He really pioneered the the um, the use of the combined use of informants and cooperating witnesses with wiretaps on the mob, and just decimated the New England mafia. Uh, really, uh, thanks in large part to his his efforts with informants. In fact, um, in 1969. Uh, he was 1969 and 70. He was so uh, successful that there was discussion in the LCN of whacking him, uh, a pretty extraordinary thing. And as a result, uh, uh, when the cases were done with uh, Patriarca and a bunch of other uh, mobsters, uh, uh, the Bureau transferred uh, Paul Rico and his family anywhere he wanted to go. And uh, uh, the family sat down one night at the dining room table, and they discussed where they wanted to go, and they picked Miami <laughs> because it was on the East Coast, and their relatives and friends could get there, and the weather was a little bit better. And uh, so the Bureau transferred him uh, because of the threat against him and his family uh, because he had been so successful. I would say Paul Rico was really a spectacular FBI agent. He retired in 1975 and uh, went to work for a highlight company down in Miami. Well, and, you're gonna have uh, to. I think you're gonna have to explain to uh, to uh, us about what highlight is because I think many people um, won't know. Chris. Yeah, highlight. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a a sport that is uh, you know considered a uh, you know part gambling and part sport. It's kind of like a handball game, uh, that a very fast game uh, on which there is uh, betting, but it's uh, it's been it's located in I don't know. It, it's kind of passe nowadays, but. Back in the 70s and and 80s, it was a big deal in both uh, Florida and in Connecticut, and I'm not sure where else. Do you know, Joe, where else? I think there were a couple of what they call, they, the game is played in a, a fronton. Did I say that correctly? Fronton, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they had a couple in Connecticut and uh, New England. Um, and and it was uh, considered a place where you'd go, have dinner, have a couple of drinks, that, uh, and um, it was an exciting uh, sport. And uh, 
Well, I'm a big I'm a I'm a big Mad Men uh, watcher, and I know that in Mad Men, um, you know the, the television show that they talked yeah. about they talked about the sport, and at the time, um, I guess it was popular in Spain and Mexico and Cuba, and that they had like hordes of screaming fans watching it, and uh, they even said that it could surpass uh, baseball and football, but I, I guess that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it did, and uh, mm. the, 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 it was an interesting sport and one that people really did think was going someplace. And when Rico retired in 1975, he went to work down in Miami for the local uh, one of the highlight companies down there, um, where he was happily working several years later. And the FBI approached him because they had the case on Alcee Hastings, who was a federal district judge in Florida, uh, suspected of uh, corruption, taking money for fixing cases. And the Bureau needed an older bag man to deliver the, the payment. And Rico, they, you know, with the mandatory retirement, there wasn't anybody old enough, so they picked uh, Rico out of retirement. He's for $1.00. Uh, delivered the, you know, worked with the agents in the case and delivered the the money. And Alcee Hastings, as a result, was um, impeached and removed from office by the Senate. The, the uh, criminal prosecution against Hastings uh, resulted in the conviction of uh, uh, one of his associates, but Hastings beat the rap and then ran for Congress where he's been for the last 20 years or so. Um, it was an interesting case, and Rico uh, again was successful, uh, even as a retired agent. Well, and, that says, and that says a lot, I guess, about his reputation with the bureau. That after retirement, I guess, you know, five years or so after retirement, he was still recognized by the bureau for you know how, how what a good agent he was. That they reached out to him and said, "Hey, come back for." a day or so and, and play this undercover role for us. Actually, it was the, the supervisor of the public corruption squad down in Miami that we interviewed, Tony Amoroso, who was the undercover guy, main guy in Abscam. But, at, you know, after Abscam, he became a supervisor down in uh, the Miami, and he's the one that actually recruited Paul personally. He knew Paul and trusted him and recruited him for this job. By the way, it's uh, an interesting sidelight is that uh, we found that Paul, he, you know, he ran the security office for Hialeah there in Miami. He was like the director of security, and he hired all uh, exclusively former FBI, uh, SACs, agents, supervisors, and you know their spouses as secretaries. Uh, support personnel. They were. It was all FBI in there. In fact, we uh, we we asked uh, the detective, the Tulsa detective, about that, and uh, his comment was he was so convinced that of this deep dark conspiracy uh, involving the bureau that he said, well, that just shows you how deep this conspiracy ran. You know that all of these uh, because our our attitude was that if you were if you were a bad guy, you know, normally a bad guy likes to surround himself with other bad guys that he can trust. 
uh, doesn't hire legitimate law enforcement people uh, in in the office uh, or as secretaries and people taking messages and, and people that can could eventually testify uh, against you if you're up to no good. That was to us. That was not a sign of uh, corruption at all. Um, but you know, I think it, it, it. You know, Joe and I often describe this this whole thing involving Rico, surrounding Rico, as a perfect storm, because there were so many so many threads to this story we found uh, that we didn't realize actually when we got into it, when we were just investigating the the murder charges against Paul Rico. The problem was that there was some real corruption that was uncovered in the FBI Boston. And now, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because, you know, when I first heard about this, I already admitted to you, I thought about John Connolly, and I, and I thought about, right. you know, the other uh, agents who had been coming up a little dirty with their connections with organized crime in Boston. And so when I hear about Paul Rico and, and that he had connections in Boston, uh, you know, prior to going down to Miami, I have to admit, I kind of painted him with that same brush. And right. so why don't we talk about, why don't, we, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about what happened in Boston and Whitey Boulder and John Connolly and their connection. Basically what happened in Boston is that John Connolly developed some Irish mobsters, including Whitey Bulger, and uh, I, don't, I guess you wouldn't call Steve Fleming Irish, but he was part of that Irish gang um, as informants, so what were called top echelon or high-level informants in Boston. And one thing that's, you know, that we discovered, because just like uh, you mentioned, Jerry, when we first got into this, too, we, we kind of lumped all of these people together, and Paul Rico, and he was in Boston, and uh, John Connolly and uh, the uh, supervisor up there, and, and, you know, it was all one part of the same story. But what we discovered was that Paul Rico was transferred from Boston to Miami in 1970, I believe. It might have been 71, but I think it was 1970. 70, okay. And, and John Connolly didn't transfer into into Boston, didn't show up until 1975. They missed each other by five years. They never worked together. And Paul Rico never operated Whitey Bulger as an informant. In fact, the only contact he had personally with him was that he arrested him for bank robbery in, I think, 1957. But he never operated Whitey Bulger as an informant and never worked with John Connolly. They they were separated. Their careers in Boston were separated by a gap of five years. So he never had really had nothing to do with any of that. Paul Rico did operate Steve the Rifleman Flemmy, who was tied in with Bulger. He operated Flemmy as an informant until 1969, and he closed Flemmy as an informant when Flemmy placed a bomb in his lawyer's car and tried to try to murder the lawyer. He succeeded in blowing one of his, the lawyer's legs off. He, he didn't kill the lawyer because the lawyer was involved in uh, representing Barboza, was, was, was considered a traitor by the mob. So Fleming placed a bomb in the car and became a murder fugitive. And, of course, 
following the rules, uh, he was closed as an informant by RICO. So Paul RICO moves to Miami in 1970. Connolly gets to Boston in 1975 and operates Fleming and Bulger as informants. Now, Fleming, without confusing the story by going into all of that, uh, the charges were later dropped against Fleming, and Fleming returned to Boston and began working with Whitey Bulger again in the late 70s and working as an informant for the FBI and for John Connolly. So this, as the story goes, when the, when the corruption was uncovered in Boston in the early, uh, actually it was the mid-90s is when that, all, when that all transpired. So now there's a gap of, of 20 years between John Connolly uh, arriving in, in Boston and all of the controversy and the investigation of the FBI office in Boston in the mid-90s. And all of this gets conflated when you read the news articles and when you, when you, when you learn about these things. It's all conflated into one big mess. And that's kind of how Paul Rico, in the, in, in the, uh, in the mind of the, of the press and Congress and everybody else, gets lumped into this story, and he really doesn't belong there. Jerry, uh, Rico was working for the Highlight World Highlight Company in Florida from 1975 uh, on for about 25 years, I guess, 20, 25 years. And um, uh, the uh, company was purchased by Roger Wheeler, the murder victim, in, who was uh, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in, in uh, 1978. And in 1981, Wheeler was murdered. And as it turns out, uh, it's very clear that Wheeler was murdered by Whitey Bulger and Fleming. didn't pull the gun, but they set it up for Johnny Martirano and another guy to go to Tulsa and kill him. And uh, when they got caught for the uh, murder, when it became evident that they had done the, the, the murder, they, uh, uh, Fleming at least, uh, worked out a deal uh, in which he would testify that Paul Rico was involved in a conspiracy to murder uh, uh, Wheeler, who was, in fact, the owner of the company that uh, Rico worked for. And Martirano, the um, guy that actually pulled the trigger, also uh, uh, testified or was willing to testify, both of them uh, getting a, um, a pretty sweet deal from the federal government uh, to to tell this uh, story, uh, so that's how uh, Paul Rico got into this uh, situation. He had Boston connections as an agent. Um, he knew uh, Fleming. He'd worked Fleming. He'd arrested uh, Whitey at one point in Whitey's uh, uh, life, a criminal ca career, and he worked for the company in uh, Florida. They had a colleague. Uh, who they uh, uh, who set the murder up and um, uh, believed that they could buy the company if uh, they uh, were if the, the owner Wheeler was uh, was killed. Uh, that didn't work out for them, but when they got caught, they of course tried to make a deal, and that's uh, really how Paul Rico. Uh, that's 
that's really the the case against Paul but, Rico, as it turns out. But there's the testimony, just the testimony of those two people that yeah, were well, actually involved in the murder. I'll tell you how specifically, how how why why we call this a perfect storm because we talked a little bit about the corruption in Boston and how that came to light in the mid '90s. Okay, 15 years after the murder of Wheeler, but you see, early on, Detective Mike Huff, who stuck with this case as his lifelong, um, well, you might want to say obsession, but he became convinced early on. And this is where law enforcement goes wrong, you know, often I've seen uh, over the years, is when they come to a uh, conclusion early on about what happened, and then their investigation is conducted in such a way as to confirm their initial conclusions. So he came to believe that, well, wait a minute, this retired FBI agent in uh, who's part of security at World Highlight, which was Wheeler's company, has got to be involved in this case. He's got Boston connections. He must be responsible somehow for this murder. And he he held on to that belief, but was able to produce no evidence to substantiate that belief all through the all through the 1980s and the 90s. In fact, uh, Roger Wheeler's son, Roger Wheeler Jr., kept. Paul Rico on at World High, World Highlight until about 1995, until they sold the company. So 14 uh, years after the murder of his father, yes. the son yes. still believed in Paul Rico and kept him on. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and that says a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, that said a lot to us also. Uh, but but so the, the, this detective was absolutely convinced that Paul Rico must have had something to do, and he kind of ignored clues pointing in other directions. I don't want to confuse things by getting into that right now, but so what happened then is that we have these these unrelated hearings uh, into corruption going on in federal court in Boston in 1999, so 18 years after the murder. And John Martirano, who's one of these in one of these hoods tied in with, you know, Bulger and Fleming, decides to cut a deal with the federal government that he's going to flip and he's going to he's going to going to, you know, make a deal to actually what he did is he served, was it uh, 12 years or something for 20 murders? He admitted to 20, 20 mob murders as part of his plea agreement with the government. And as part of that, as part of his cooperation, Mike Huff flew up to Boston to interview him. And what the, the you know, I mean, our, our, from our uh, analysis of what happened, it's pretty clear that, that John Martirano, who was, you know, no fight of Beta Kappa, but he was a streetwise uh, criminal who was able to stay on the street for many years committing murders without getting caught, was able to see exactly what Mike Huff wanted to hear. And even at that, what he was able to tell Mike Huff was, well, I got a piece of paper from... uh, from a, a 
John Callahan, who was actually the, the, the guy who commissioned the Wheeler murder, John Callahan. John Callahan gave me a piece of paper with the information I needed to find Roger Wheeler to murder him in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Callahan told me that he got the information from Paul Rico. So that's, that's what, that's what Mike Huff, the detective in Tulsa, had to take to the district attorney to try and charge Paul Rico for, for, uh, I guess between 1999 and 2003. And understandably, the district attorney, the elected district attorney in Tulsa didn't want to charge somebody based on that statement, in part because John Callahan wasn't available to confirm John Martirano's story because in 1982, John Martirano put a bullet behind uh, John Callahan's left ear. So he wasn't available to corroborate the story. So a jury was going to have to take John Martirano's word for that double hearsay, uh, alleging that Paul Rico provided this piece of paper. We flew out, uh, Jerry, to uh, Tulsa, as Chris was saying earlier, to uh, interview Mike Huff uh, because, uh, one, he said he would talk to us, and two, um, we were disturbed enough early in the case that it looked like the case was just these two thugs, uh, Stevie Fleming and uh, Martirano, who uh, together had killed 40 people. And and uh, there didn't seem to be much more to it. Uh, at any rate, uh, we found that Huff, really, he, he talked to us, as, as Chris had said, for three hours. And... Um, uh, he he really had no case. Uh, and when we asked him, um, well, you know, how did you know that Paul Rico was guilty of uh, conspiring with these thugs uh, to be a part of the, this murder? And he, he looked at us kind of uh, um, like we were from Mars or something. He said, well, he said there, during the Irish gang wars, in Boston, there were 60 people killed, and Paul Rico was responsible for 30 of those murders. Now, what? You know, so you, you, here we have a detective, uh, and I'm, you know, I mean, there are plenty of small-town detectives in our country who are good, solid uh, detectives who know what they're doing, but I'm afraid that uh, um, uh, Mike Huff struck us as a... Um, uh, what you might characterize as a small-town detective who really had no concept or very little concept of uh, big-time uh, uh, mob guys who kill 40 people, you know, 20 people. It was very easy for me to see John Martirano with uh, with Huff eating out of his hand, I have to say, uh, much and less Steve Fleming. If you think that uh, an FBI agent in Boston could kill or participate in 30 murders and at the same time have a, a be the instrumental guy in putting the, the mob boss away and nobody would say anything about it? I mean, that's a little hard to believe. Raymond Patriarca went to jail and this agent was uh, killing 30 people in 
in Boston, and no uh, defense attorney said, "Well, hey, wait a minute, you know, your your uh, principal uh, investigator here is a is a corrupt murderer himself." I mean, that's just beyond the pale. And we kept trying to steer Huff back to the case that had been charged of the murder of Roger Wheeler, and and every time we made that attempt. Uh, we we found ourselves, you know, on another wild goose chase about well, you know, uh, you know that uh, that Rico and Director Hoover and Clyde Tolson had a uh, a, a gay tryst, you know. Well, <laughs> what? <laughs> and and <laughs> well, how do you know that? And he had uh, apparently that was. You know, there was some mobster that had made some sort of allegation, whatever. It was, it was like, okay, well, Will, let's talk about that later. Let's get back to the case that you charged. That's what we want to know about: is what is your evidence that convinces you that that Paul Rico conspired in this murder? And that's one of the things that really troubled us about our conversation. In fact, it, ultimately, the conversation came to an end because. Huff was dissatisfied with our response when he alleged that the uh, that the the new SAC who had arrived in Boston, a gentleman by the name of Barry Mon, had tried to have him <laughs> had tried to have Detective Huff murdered. Oh my and, goodness! And we said, "Well, wait, how did that happen?" And he says, "Well, he describes a scenario where he showed up there and." Uh, SAC Mon had been brought in to to try and get a get a handle on the mess that was going on there in Boston. Had just arrived there at the office. These hearings were going on in front of uh, U.S. District Judge uh, Mark Wolf. Very high profile uh, public investigation of this corruption. And uh, Huff said that he showed up unannounced at uh, Mr. Mon's office came in there and told him that he was there conducting an investigation there for Tulsa as part of this thing uh, by himself in Boston and that he was he told uh, the SAC that he was headed out to to talk to one of the one of the mobster's girlfriends he left there and went to the to the uh, to the girlfriend's home and he said when he got to the address he, he saw the uh, there was a, uh, a buzzer and an intercom. We announced himself. He said he saw the curtains move, and he was sure that the mobster was in there and that they had been tipped off that he was on his way there. And the only person that knew that was the SAC there in Boston. And and it, Joe and I both looked at each other, and we didn't we really didn't uh, you know. Didn't have any expression. What we were just kind of taking it all in, you know. But uh, uh, Huff was not satisfied with our response. I mean, he thought we should have been outraged that, at this uh, this leak of his investigation there in Boston. And we were actually, I think, we were both just shocked when we heard the story. And we thought, well, this is it was you know on the basis of this kind of information. This former respected FBI agent had been arrested, charged with murder, held without bond, and died shackled to a bed. I mean, that was kind of the that's kind of what was going through my mind. 
Well, I have to ask this question. I'm sure you know everybody else who's listening is thinking the same thing. Okay, so it is insufficient information, but how in the world did he get an arrest warrant? Well, that's an well, interesting story. Somebody believed him. Jerry, I, I have to say, um, we we talk in this uh, about the perfect storm. You know, Rico was a Boston guy for most of his career. Uh, he dressed, and we we had uh, one agent describe him as a guy who looked like he was uh, in Guys and Dolls, kind of a you know a little bit of an old fashioned dresser, but a flashy dresser and. Not your typical blue suits and uh, white shirts that the FBI of that period uh, uh, wore. He kind of looked the part of um, a mob guy. He uh, went out to his job. Really, was recruiting informants and cooperating witnesses. And he, he would go to the track. He would go to the bars. He would go to places where people hung out. Uh, that were mob guys and talked to them. He knew all of them, and uh, he recruited them successfully, um, you know, for the FBI, a number of them. He really was quite successful at that. But along the way, he created, um, there was a lot of buzz in police circles about Paul Rico. You know, if you're watching the mob and you see this guy, this kind of flashy-looking guy, uh, hanging around with them, talking to them, and, and, and knew them all. Uh, then gossip and stories started. So it was easy for uh, people to believe that uh, Paul Rico was part of that scene. And then he was confused with uh, Connolly. Uh, we heard rumors that, uh, that Rico had mentored uh, John Connolly into a web of corruption. There's... Uh, um, there, there are people up in Boston who are reporters who say things like that, and and that's really baloney. I mean, they didn't work together. Rico left Boston in 1970. Connolly arrived several years later. They never worked together. We we don't believe that they knew each other. Rico never operated Whitey Bulger as an informant. Let Whitey Bulger. Well, let, let me give a, a more specific answer to the question that Jerry asked earlier, and, and it goes back to the perfect storm idea. You know, for several years, Huff, uh, encouraged by the little tidbit of information that he'd gotten from John Martirano. See, John Martirano flipped in about 1999, or 2000 maybe, and he gave... I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that interview room for this interview, but essentially what it boils down to, he gave the information that John Callahan, who Martirano killed a year later, according to Martirano, Callahan gave him this piece of paper that Callahan said was written by Paul Rico with the address and the, the tag number and the information he'd need to go to Tulsa and whack Roger Wheeler. Okay, so with that information, Huff, who by this time was the, the guy in charge of the homicide squad in Tulsa, was beating up on the, the, the elected district attorney in Tulsa to charge Paul Rico. And understandably, the district attorney resisted filing charges based on that one tidbit 
and Huff's, all of Huff's suspicions. So Huff went very public about his dissatisfaction with the gutless district attorney, who, after all, is an elected official out there. There was, we, we saw, I think we mentioned it in the book, a Sunday, uh, a Sunday special spread where Huff was interviewed criticizing the district attorney in uh, like mid-2003, in the summer of 2003, uh, who I'm not sure if he was up for re-election that year or, or next, uh, but criticizing the district attorney for not being willing to charge this corrupt FBI agent, Paul Rico, when, when Huff had the goods on him, had the case, went very public. It's not something we FBI agents are really accustomed to, but... In some, you know, local jurisdictions, it does work like this. There's a lot of politics involved in these things. And uh, a couple of months later, Steve Fleming lost in front of the First Circuit Court of Appeals his challenge to the FBI's evidence, and it was clear that he was going to lose and he was going to have to cut a deal. So Steve Fleming decided that he would flip. So we're talking now October 2003. And the elected DA, not an assistant district attorney, but the elected DA who had been beat up in the press by Mike Huff, accompanied Mike Huff to Boston. This was such a big deal. And personally debriefed Steve Fleming. Now keep in mind that Steve Fleming, in challenging the government's evidence in Boston, had been painted by the government as an abject liar, someone whose word you couldn't take for the time of day. And in, in written pleadings in front of the First Circuit Court of Appeals, the government had been adamant that uh, Steve Fleming, who had testified during these preliminary hearings in the federal court in Boston, was completely, uh, you know, had committed perjury on numerous occasions and had absolutely zero credibility. Well, now all of a sudden, Fleming has cut a deal and the, the, uh, and is interviewed by the district attorney and Mike Huff in Boston. And what he tells them is enough for them to want to charge Paul Rico. And what he told them, and I got this from interviewing the district attorney uh, on the phone on several occasions. He was, he was willing to talk to us. What they got from Fleming was that Fleming alleged that Paul Rico had made a phone call in 1981 at the behest of John Callahan to, um, to Fleming and allegedly told Fleming on the telephone from Miami that, yes, I want Roger Wheeler murdered. <laughs> Told him that on the telephone from Miami. Now, keep in mind, according to Fleming, the last time he'd spoken to uh, Paul Rico was in 1969 when Fleming fled after trying to murder his attorney. And sight unseen, 12 years later, Paul Rico is willing to uh, talk to him on the telephone from my from Miami and tell him that he wants Roger Wheeler murdered. Wow. There's no corroboration of this, there's no phone records, there's no recording, there's no nothing. Based on that statement, the district attorney and Mike Huff return 
to Tulsa and draft an arrest warrant and go to a local magistrate judge who was actually a family court judge, a very friendly judge, somebody who had just finished an internship at the district attorney's office and secure an arrest warrant for RICO by filing an affidavit alleging that uh, RICO was involved in this murder. Wow. Jerry, as uh, Chris, as these things began to develop and we could see that the the case really was no case. It was just Martirano and uh, Stevie Fleming, uh, again, together, who killed 40 people. Their testimony that uh, that Rico was involved in this conspiracy, and it didn't, the facts, did, I mean, it was almost silly. Um, there were a number of things that arose that we had to kind of deal with to figure out whether they were true. One of them was in the uh, uh, civil case, Plenty alleged that in 1969, when he bombed this lawyer's car and was uh, uh, indicted, that Rico had tipped him off. Uh, Fleming didn't know that he was that Rico had closed the informant file on him, and uh, he um, uh, told uh, the judge in the court that Rico had told him that um, he was going to be indicted, so he was able to flee. Well, um, I was uh, talking to uh, uh, Floyd Clark, another, you know, who was a deputy director, who's a guy of uh, uh, great integrity. Uh, uh, Floyd is a really uh, a great guy uh, one day. And he was a young agent in uh, Boston in 1969. And he said, well, I'll tell you how that all happened. He said, um, the, the bombing occurred. And Rico uh, discovered uh, who did it. It was Fleming and a guy named Frankie Salem, who was a uh, LCN guy. And uh, uh, Rico came to Floyd, who was on the bank robbery squad, told him that uh, Fleming and uh, Salem had done the bombing, that they had made the bomb, and another guy named Bobby Dadiyiko who was in jail for a shootout with the police over a bank robbery during the bank robbery and facing really serious time, that Daddy Eco had watched them make the bomb and test the various uh, the apparatus. And um, Enrico said, gave him pictures of uh, Fleming and pictures of uh, Salem, and he suggested that Floyd uh, go to the... Uh, a jail and interview uh, Daddy Eco, which is what happened. Floyd went to the jail, interviewed Daddy Eco. Daddy Eco um, made a deal and testified against Fleming and uh, and and uh, and Salem, and and they were as a result of that they were indicted. So uh, the, the, if you go to Boston and ask some of the news guys, or ask the judge, ask Judge Wolf. Judge Wolf ruled in favor of Fleming's story as opposed to Rico, who said that didn't happen. That's not true. And you say, well, how could he take uh, this mob guy's opinion over or uh, testimony over Paul Rico? And the judge was convinced that Rico lied and Fleming was telling the truth on that point. And I would say, hey, you know, wait a minute. Paul Rico solved that case. Paul Rico did exactly what an agent 
is supposed to do when an informant of his does something terrible like bombing a lawyer's car. And and he made sure that the people investigating got the right information. Rico did the right thing. Incidentally, that's another thing that was persuasive to me, is that that's the second occasion where, uh, where you hear Mike Hoff had been had been hounding Rico for since 1981. Interviewed him a number of times. Rico always cooperated, always submitted to interviews, and that's another occasion where uh, in 1999 uh, Rico voluntarily testified in that fe- lengthy federal court hearing involving Flemmy uh, without without taking the fifth. He voluntarily testified there and in front of Congress. Uh, and, you know, I told Joe that even if I thought they were going to get me for misusing a bureau car, I might consider taking a fifth. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and here he, he, he absolutely, he said no. His comment to his attorney was, I've been in law enforcement all my life. If they call me to testify, I'm going to go tell them what I know. And uh, that impressed me. Mm, mm, absolutely. Every time we found something that uh, w- was a um, some sort of allegation, rumor, story, whatever, that Paul Rico had done the wrong thing, you know, we got into it, and it was kind of a remarkable thing. You could find out enough uh, information to disprove it. I mean, uh, Paul Rico didn't tip uh, Stevie Fleming off in 1969, and the, and uh, the, there's plenty of information uh, that should have he should have been believed. But people, um, they you know, they, uh, one of the one of the other factors I think that was uh, really uh, difficult, Paul Rico, was that people assume that highlight is a corrupt game. Uh, we found that there's a guy up in in Connecticut. Austin McQuiggan was the uh, chief state's attorney in Connecticut, and he made a number of comments to the New York Times and the Hartford uh, Current and to other newspapers uh, over the years uh, during uh, the 80s and 90s that uh, Highline was a corrupt uh, business and that it was dominated by the mob. And over and over and over, uh, if the newspaper wanted to, to have somebody say that, why well, they'd call Austin McQuiggan, and he would uh, he would lay into that and and say that it was corrupt. Well, you know, for 30 years, nobody was ever charged with any corruption at the at the uh, World Highlight Company that uh, where Paul Rico worked. But you did say that organized crime was interested in purchasing. Uh, the company yeah, and being yeah. involved. Yes, and the, this guy Callahan was a uh, educated uh, CPA uh, who Arthur had Arthur Anderson. Uh, yeah, and he had a uh, kind of a fondness for mobsters. And Callahan knew uh, Whitey and Stevie, and it was his plan to get uh, uh, to buy the World Highlight uh, Company that led to the murder of uh, Roger Wheeler. But um, we have to say that um, Rico's relationship with Callahan was interesting. When Rico went to work for the Highlight Company, he was hired uh, and uh, by uh, the board of directors, uh, 
one of which, um, uh, Alan Trustman, is a guy that we talked to. Trustman uh, wrote the screenplay, incidentally, for the Thomas Crown Affair and um, for Bullet. He's uh, quite a talented guy, lives down in Florida. He and a group of investors own the company. They hired Rico. Uh, John Callahan was the president of the of the Highlight Company. And at some point, Rico discovered that Callahan had been in Boston hanging around with Whitey and with Stevie. What did Rico do? He did exactly what you should do if you're the director of security of a company like that. He went to the board of directors and he told them, you've got a president of your company who's hanging around with monsters up in Boston, and they fired Callahan. That happened in... When did that happen, Chris? 1976. 76. Yeah, it happened very quickly after Rico was there. So uh, Rico really had no uh, association with Callahan uh, that was a corrupt association. He was responsible for Callahan getting fired. Uh, and, you know, that, that's another little interesting uh, sidelight here is that there was a logical – there was one guy in this entire uh, cast of characters that would never speak to us, and that was the the president of World High Lie, who was a very, very lo- lifelong close friend of Callahan's. But he refused to, to speak to us. But he was a guy who, you know, by the way, Paul Rico, one thing we discovered was that before he was transferred there in a prison plain, Paul Rico had never set foot in the state of Oklahoma in his life. But the the guy that uh, the president of World Highlight down there in Miami, who was a very close lifelong friend of John Callahan's, had been there to Wheeler's home and golfed with him at the Southern Hills Golf Club on many occasions and had all the necessary information to provide to John Callahan about how Callahan and these mobsters could could find and kill Roger Wheeler. He had all this information at his fingertips. And I assume that even a monster could go to Tulsa and probably quickly get that information. Well, that's something else we were told was that anybody, that this guy was the most high-profile person in all of Tulsa. He was the, the CEO of, of Telex, which was a big deal back then. Uh, this highlight thing was just a little sideline for him, but he was very well known, and anybody at the gas station could tell you where to find Roger Wheeler. But it, 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 it is, this is an example of uh, a, really a, a, a set of leads that was never followed because it didn't fit the, um, you know, it didn't fit the paradigm that that uh, had originally been come up with uh, in trying to solve this murder. Uh, but it was it seemed very logical uh, once you put all the pieces together. So, you know, one of the things that I found uh, interesting, and and again, uh, every little thing that came out that was uh, seemed to be troublesome about this case, you once you looked into it, you could resolve it so that you walked away from it with comfort that, that Rico or the Highlight Company did the right thing. 
And there were all these uh, rumors, and this guy, McQuiggan, was saying it's corrupt, it's it's uh, dominated by the mob, and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, finally, the uh, Miami police and the Connecticut State Police did a search of the uh, World Highlight Company, a very uh, high-handed, uh, heavy-handed search, and um, uh, they seized uh, so many records that they uh, put them out of business almost for uh, several weeks. And uh, they kept those records for a year. Uh, they turned them over to INS, IRS, I'm sorry, the Internal Revenue uh, people, and, um, and, and never made a prosecution or never, uh, although they gave their, their uh, search a big publicity. Uh, finally, Roger Wheeler Jr., who owned the company when the search occurred, uh, was angry enough to launch a lawsuit against the police. Uh, and we wondered what um, what happened to that lawsuit. Uh, and um, we knew that it was uh, that it was settled. And I uh, asked a friend, another agent, uh, Jim Sturgis, down in Atlanta, who's retired down there. Jim went over to the uh, 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 the, the court, um, not the, uh, the uh, there's a warehouse there where court records for that district are kept, the district in Florida, and um, and did research for us. He found that the the settlement involved a letter of apology from the officers that led the search and from the police departments that conducted the search, and I think it was a hundred thousand dollar payment. Yes. The World Highlight Company. Is that right, Chris? $100,000? Yes, yes, for damages. And I've never seen an apology from these law enforcement agencies in any other case that yeah, they admitted so, that their information was false. So here's a here's a, um, a search with lots of publicity in the newspapers and, and uh, stories about uh, uh, corruption and murders and all sorts of things. And, and they keep the records for over a year. They turn them over to IRS, and no charges, nothing. And, and it ends with a letter of apology and a statement that, the, that they went through those records and they couldn't find anything that revealed a criminal. Let, uh, let, let, me tell you, let me add something else. Uh, you know, when we went out there to see Mike Huff, we decided to go just on a, on a lark and go – have a sit down with uh, Roger Wheeler Jr. Uh, in his office. Uh, we were actually dissuaded from doing so by Mike Huff for some reason. Uh, but we went and sat down. We sat down with uh, Roger Wheeler Jr. First thing we noticed was that he had a picture of himself and Paul Rico on his credenza. This is in 2006. Uh, <clears throat> and he. Uh, he was very upset at how this was all handled. One thing that he told, uh, how this was all handled, one thing that he told us that I thought was pretty interesting is right after his father was murdered in May 1981, he immediately dispatched, uh, uh, the name of the accounting for, firm escapes me now. I, I want to say K, uh, KPGM or what, what am I thinking KPMG. of? KPMG. 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 They, they, they locked down that office there and went through every piece of paper, like immediately afterwards, looking for any kind of, uh, you know, irregularities. 
in the in the in the money. He says one thing he explained to us is that you know this these every every dime in this uh, business is accounted for. This isn't like Vegas where you have cartloads of cash rolling through the casino. You know, these all of these bets, everything is there's a paper trail for every dime that's put through that company. And he says they tore that place apart, this accounting firm, and they could come up with absolutely nothing irregular that had been going on in that company. So any rumors of game fixing or skimming have definitely been proven to be false. If you go to Boston and look at the newspaper reports, there's one reporter up there that uh, talks about a $10,000 a week skim. And in her uh, reporting, uh, she suggests that Paul Rico uh, participated in this murder because um, uh, Roger Wheeler was about to discover that he was being stolen from uh, at the rate of ten grand a week. Well, I, I would tell you, you know, this is, we're talking the 1980s, or 1981, and 500, uh, well, it's $500,000 a year. That's a lot of money back then. And um, uh, the, you couldn't steal that kind of money without uh, having uh, some kind of uh, notice in the records or something that was, that was amiss. And those records were poured over by, um, by the police, by IRS by uh, accounting firms. Uh, we knew, uh, or we found, for example, that um, uh, they uh, every bet that was placed in the uh, highlight company uh, was placed on a computer. So you couldn't, you, you couldn't lose track of cash or you couldn't double pay uh, winners. It really was a, quite a, a close operation. And in addition, as Chris had pointed out, there were five or six FBI agents, retired agents that worked down there, and every time they had a big um, uh, event or, you know, they had a, a, a game, they hired 20 or 25 police officers to be present to make sure that everything stayed as it should. It okay, was a I have very to, clean cut operation. All right, but I have to ask this question. If that's the case, then why did... Whitey Bulger and Callahan and uh, the others want to buy it. Why? Why? Why was Wheeler killed? Well, if they if they owned it, they could obviously steal from it and skim from it. They didn't own it, and Rico was the director of security, and all those agents were there working there. Um, they, you know, and um, Callahan wanted. So to why? Be able so to why buy that company? Why? The, why that highlight company? Why couldn't they go find another where there wasn't FBI agents who were working at the company? Well, I, I, I think I have an answer for that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that we're ever going to have a conclusive answer, but this is the best that I've been able to come up with. Is the the um, Roger Wheeler bought? that company in a deal that was arranged by a banker in Boston where the main benefit to Roger Wheeler was, uh, keep in mind, this was back when marginal tax rates for somebody, a multimillionaire like, uh, like Wheeler were for his personal taxes were, I don't know, something like in the, in the 90% range, the top range, you know, we're talking the late seventies before the Reagan tax cuts. Okay. 
So the, the purchase that Wheeler made of World Hyali was done in such a way that he would receive the personal tax benefit of depreciating all of the Hyali players. In other words, I think the estimate that we got was that his, he was going to get a personal tax write-off of something like $15 million a year, something like that. For, for about four or five years, at the end of which the best evidence that I was able to come up with was that he had a handshake, a handshake deal with the president of Hialeah, Callahan's partner, to transfer the ownership or sell this company back to their control. There were negotiations that were undertaken for the purchase that were led uh, nominally by the president of Hialeah that had gone back and forth for months before Wheeler was killed to, to transfer the ownership, sell the control of World Hialeah back to the president of, of Hialeah, representing the silent, apparently representing Callahan and Bulger and Fleming and these people. They were going to take control. And I'm not sure that Wheeler was really aware of who was behind, who was behind this purchase entirely. I think he had a handshake deal with this president who was a, you know, uh, on paper a legitimate person, the president of World High Life. But he didn't know all the machinations behind the scenes. And Wheeler had a reputation for being a personally a very difficult person to, to do business with. He was the type of person who would drive a bargain. You would think you had a deal. And at the last minute, he would pack up his, his stuff and walk out of the room when you think you had the best deal possible and just drive drive people crazy with the way that he did business. And that's the way he functioned as a businessman. Well, he did that, did that apparently to the wrong people because they, weren't, uh, they were not amused. In fact, there was paperwork to suggest that Wheeler had just flatly turned down the last final offer for the purchase, uh, 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 the repurchase of Hialeah by this president of the company about a week before he was murdered. So I think they finally decided that there was no way that they were going to peacefully be able to get this thing back in their control without Wheeler out of the way. Jerry, it's a uh, it's a relatively simple um, a thing when you stop and realize and think about it that um, there really wasn't any case here. There's two um, two guys uh, who are thugs and murderers um, who. Uh, who testified that Paul Rico was part of a conspiracy. Um, uh, Martirano uh, never even said that he had ever talked to Paul Rico uh, before the um, the murder occurred. And, uh, and Flemmy hadn't talked to him in uh, 20 years, and, and he wants you to believe that there was a telephone call in which a uh, moxie... Um, uh, FBI investigator like Paul Rico uh, would uh, talk to a thug like him and uh, and tell him that he wanted to commit murder. 
and nobody, uh, nobody on the prosecution side decided, well, maybe we ought to polygraph these guys, you know? Maybe we ought to find some corroboration beyond these two uh, thugs. And I, I don't believe that they could possibly have convicted Paul Rico of, of anything. The first thing that somebody like Paul Rico is going to think, when he gets a call and he, and he hears it's Steve Flemmy, who's sight unseen for 12 years at that point, and wants to ask him about whether or not they, they, uh, they should commit a murder, wants to talk to him about that on the telephone. The first thing he's going to envision is Steve Flemmy shackled himself to some district attorney's desk, you know, with a tape recorder uh, next to him. You know, he's going to – there's just – there's no – even if you assumed – that that Rico was venal, there's no possible way that he would have a conversation like that on the telephone with somebody like Steve Fleming, sight unseen, in my opinion. I mean, you're going to have to prove it to me. You're going to have to give me a tape recording. You're going to at least have to show me some toll records that show that there was such a conversation. Yeah, so. and, it's, uh, and, it, and you had reporters who are reporting just the most the scurrilous stuff. Uh, it's really distressing to see um, uh, what the Boston reporters were saying about different things. This, uh, one, this one reporter who kept talking about a $10,000 a week skim from uh, the World Highlight Company, after Chris and I had done enough investigation to be pretty comfortable that that wasn't occurring, I called I called her up on the phone and I asked her I said you know we're former agents we've done a little looking into this and and uh we don't see where there's uh, it's possible that there was a $10,000 a week skim from uh from the highlight business and I said where did you get that information and she said well well it uh, it's in testimony somewhere <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, that's one of the things that Roger Wheeler Jr., who actually ran the business for 15 more years after his father was killed, said was absolutely flatly impossible. It could yeah, not happen. I, I, it, it really was. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a crazy thing. It's disheartening. And, and in the end, um, I have to say, I think our organization, I love the FBI. I was an agent for 30, uh, uh, 30, almost 30 years. And, and, um, I mean, I have the highest uh, appreciation for the Bureau and for, uh, the things that it's accomplished. But I have to say, uh, in this case, Rico was gone a long time. Uh, there, there weren't very many people who really knew him, uh, at the point in which this case was prosecuted. And it was incumbent on the FBI, I think, when there's a allegation like this or serious charges against a former agent, to figure out whether he did it or not. It took Chris and I a couple of years to wade through all this information. It's a little complicated, a little difficult, um, and and to come to the conclusion that he was an innocent guy. Um, the bureau could have done that in a couple months. They had all the informant records. They knew what uh, his accomplishments were. Uh, and, and had they done it, 
they would have had an obligation to defend him. As a matter of fact, um, the Bureau kind of pulled away from Paul Rico uh, in this case because they didn't want to be accused of uh, of um, uh, trying to uh, weigh the scales in favor of a former employee because the uh, Conley thing was going on in Boston, and the last thing the Bureau felt they needed was to be accused of intervening for a, a corrupt agent. And as it turns out, they, they never really figured it out. And I think they had an obligation to do that. There's an obligation to support and defend uh, a good agent, uh, somebody who's been loyal and done the right thing for all those years. And they didn't, uh, unfortunately, our organization didn't step up and do that. Hey, there was an institutional reason also uh, uh, even a big, a big picture reason in, in terms of the risk to agents from working informants. That's really where this, this was a, you know, a job related death in, as, as far as I'm concerned, because this is all a result of his work, his working with informants. And that being the case, I think the Bureau really had an obligation to get involved in this thing, to, to step in with, you know, both feet. To either prove it or disprove it. Other than your book, which we'll talk about in, uh, a little bit more in just a second, what kind of vindication did Paul Rico get? I don't believe anybody else has written a book about this, and I, but I do think since our book has been published, we know a great many agents have bought it and read it, and we never heard the first word that anything was not correct in that book. Uh, and I feel like people would be happy to call us up and tell us that it was uh, it was wrong. So uh, I think um, the, the facts are pretty clear. And that Paul Rico was, a, uh, he wasn't just a great agent. Uh, he wasn't just uh, not guilty of this. He was a remarkably straight agent, even though he looked, kind of like a rough, tough guy uh, all his career. He always did the right thing as far as we can we could see. And that, that started when he was a high school kid. Uh, World War II came along. He left uh, school after his uh, football season, his senior year. He liked to play football and, uh, and joined the Army, uh, served honorably in uh, Italy, 24, B-24 bombers, uh, as a, uh, a gunner of some kind, and uh, uh, was awarded three bronze stars for his uh, efforts uh, there. He raised uh, five lovely children, uh, all uh, professional and, and uh, good people. He was uh, always um, um, uh, on the right side in the FBI. We never found a thing that Paul Rico uh did that was uh, that was actually wrong, and yet he's the subject of all this uh, scurrilous talk and um, and crazy uh, uh, rumors. And uh, he, he mentored John Connolly into uh, a web of corruption. It's all baloney. It's all uh, it's all not true. And uh, so we hope that our book has done uh, in some some way a clarification of who Paul Rico was. 
And I think there's a number of people that didn't know much about him that now do. And I hope we've cleared his reputation a bit. And what about Huff? Go ahead, Chris. I didn't, I, well, I, we haven't had any contact with him since the since the book has been published. So I'm I'm assuming that he's still confident of his uh, uh, theories, uh, but you know I have nothing you know to base that on. But really, the the uh, the most heartwarming call I I got was from an, an agent that I really truly respect. Uh, from Boston, who just called out of the blue and said, "You know, we, we really want to thank you guys for we had this this thing happen, and nobody knew nobody knew what really happened, and this answered a lot of questions, and it was just uh, it was the, he was so grateful that we had gone to this effort, and uh, that that made it all worth it as far as I'm concerned, right there. If he was corrupt and he participated in murder." I mean, we needed to know that. The FBI needed to know that, and the agents needed to know that. If he wasn't guilty, as we decided he wasn't, um, they needed to know that, too. It has great you know, institutional implications for the ability of the FBI to uh, operate, to recruit and operate high-level informants and, and implications for the kind of risks that agents take in operating these treacherous people, these informants, particularly these high-level informants. And the Bureau has an interest in, in making that work so that the Bureau can do its work. And even though he was long gone from the FBI when he was in this trouble, we should have, uh, we should have been there for him. And I, I feel badly that we didn't do that. So the book is Rico, How Politicians prosecutors, and the mob destroyed one of the FBI's finest special agents. So I will have a link to your book in the this episode show notes if anybody wants to go and, and pick up a copy. I'd like to give both of you or either one of you the opportunity to have the last word. When somebody is listening to this, what's the takeaway? If they were going to tell someone else about Paul Rico, what is the main thing that you want them to come away with? I defer to the senior author, Joe Wolfinger. I would like people to take away from this that this was uh, really a hell of an FBI agent, great agent, worked hard, did the right thing, and that uh, he got caught up in this situation where uh, a lot of events coincided and um, and the publicity and the news and all those things presented the wrong picture of the guy. It is uh, awful that he was not able to live to uh, face a trial because I cannot imagine that they would have uh, convicted him. But unfortunately, he passed away before uh, we could have any real airing of the, of the evidence against him. And and pe- people need to be better um, processors of the news. I mean, um, the, the news really has done an awful job with Paul Rico and presenting the facts about him. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just shameful. Uh, there are people up in Boston who have... Um, uh, said that he was the most corrupt FBI agent in the history of the world and 
all this stuff. Uh, you, uh, we need to be more fact-driven, and, and we need to see more facts before we come to conclusions. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, in this episode's show notes, you'll find a photo of Joe Wolfinger and Chris Kerr. You'll find a link to their book. You'll find photos of Paul Rico. And you'll see newspaper articles that came out during the time of his arrest and his untimely death. If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. The social media share buttons are at the bottom of the show notes. And of course, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, you can share it directly from your device. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on iTunes Apple Podcast. I also want to mention that the book, Rico, How Politicians, Prosecutors, and the Mob destroyed one of the FBI's finest special agents, is already a part of my FBI reading resource, which is, of course, my list of books about the FBI, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs that are written by the very agents who have been interviewed on this podcast. The list right now consists of at least 30 uh, different books. You can get that by going to my website and signing up when you see the pop-up. And for those of you who have not yet signed up for my monthly email about the FBI and books, TV, and movies, I have some entertainment news for October that I want to remind you about. Mind Hunter started this month on Netflix, and it is a new TV show that is based on the book Mind Hunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit that was written by FBI former profiler John Douglas. I saw the first episode. I thought it was excellent, and I absolutely love the tagline for the show. How do we get ahead of crazy if we don't know how crazy thinks? So check that out, Mindhunter on Netflix. The other thing I wanted to remind you about was Chasing Phil by David Howard, a book that came out this month based on the case involving Jim Weddick from episode six and Jack Brennan, his partner, and their long-term undercover sting called Operation Fountain Pen. Chasing Phil has already been picked up to be made into a feature film. So again, Chasing Phil by Dave Howard, the story of the undercover role played by retired FBI agents Jim Weddick and Jack Brennan. My crime fiction recommendation for this week is The Girl with a Clock for a Heart by Peter Swanson. The story of a man swept into a vortex of irresistible passion and murder when an old love mysteriously reappears. I love this book. There's so many twists and turns and the tension. It's one of those books when you're reading it, you're, you're, you want to shout at the protagonist, don't open the door, don't go in there, don't believe her. It, uh, it really is a page turner. And while you're at Amazon picking up a copy of A Girl with a Clock for a Heart, I hope you check out my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, 
about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry, a case somebody with her past should never have taken. I love me a flawed character. Pay to Play is available as an ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.